So I'm located at the Warwick Business School, which ironically is next to Warwick, but in Coventry. So I figure out how different payment methods change, how we perceive money, how we handle money, and actually how we relate to money. I moved from nudging longer term savings into figuring out what newer payment methods do. Um, contactless, you know, interesting payment method, but it's very, very quick. When you say contact payments, are you just talking about the slide, putting your card over yeah. a ATM? Um, yeah, I think the UK government tried to call it tap and go as a way of making yeah. that term happen. That term did not happen. Uh, but they really tried, they made a good go of it. But yeah, it's just referred to as contactless. You tap the card against the terminal, there is no PIN code, there's no further form of verification. Um, and initially there were loads of caps on these payments, depending on which country you're in or which provider you used. Um, but those caps or these limits are sneaking up like every year. Uh, you can put a hundred quid uh, on an unverified transaction. From a fraud perspective, surprisingly not as bad as I thought because it's quite well protected. From a personal finance perspective, a bit more of an issue than most people think or that anyone has actually been remotely concerned about, which is interesting. Um, so with contactless payments, we ran a couple of studies. So in a survey experiment and a, just a, a transactional data set analysis. So on that type of payment method, I'm pretty sure to say you spend more often, you spend more, you forget how much you've spent. The recall isn't that great. Surprisingly, recall on a contactless card, immediate expenditure recall is better on contactless than it is on PIN verified. But I think if any type of psychologist is uh, listening in with how short-term memory works, if you then have to recall your PIN code, you push out your expenditure. That is just how these processes are structured. You started off with your focus being about nudges to encourage better personal finance habits yep. or saving behavior. Fantastic uh, goal, and it matches exactly with Ben's glorious compounding plan from the first episode. Ben's responsible for all of this, basically. <laughs> I see. <laughs> so that matches exactly with that, and we'll use that to get into that subject a bit later. But it just made me think, so it seems like the contactless payment innovation has been a nudge in the opposite direction. Yeah. Well, I think any current uh, development towards making it easier or quicker or more frictionless, you know, whatever, with regards to payments is, you know, I mean, isn't this one of the key principles in behavioral science? If you want people to do something, make it easy. So what exactly do you expect is going to happen if you make paying one of the easiest things in the world? And I think, so I just picked contactless because it was popularized as I started the, or did the dissertation, rolled over to the PhD. I've researched other methods as well. So mobile payment, I mean, especially for anyone under the age of 30, there is no chance in how you're walking about without your mobile phone. You will have these options enabled. And as a result, you will continuously have money available to you, whether that is on a current card or current account loaded into your phone, a credit card and any type of payment method is accessible through your phone. Um, I think gadgets that, you know, like the, the smartwatch, I'm pretty sure you can pay with that yeah. too. Although I haven't, okay. Well, I haven't really seen many people pay with that, but maybe I'm just, maybe I just hang out in the wrong crowds. You know, maybe I should, I should move up on the, the FinTech ladder with regards to who I hang out with. But I mean, this is, this is just what we're currently seeing. And, you know, I know uh, Amazon has been launching this, but as soon as Amazon does something, no one else is as much further behind. These like tillless stores where you walk in and through facial recognition or through ID scanning at the entrance, you know, you they know who you are. They know which financial accounts are linked to you. You walk into the store and I'm sure, you know, at the start of this, people will think this is very funny because it's kind of gimmicky to walk into a store, be recognized, pick up the product and just walk out and, because, you know, it, it, it feels a bit like, you know, you're stealing, like it's cool. Um, but it's it's not because it, it eradicates everything associated with payments. And the fact that if you walk into a quote unquote store, in this case, that things will actually cost you money. And if it's not now, it will be later. And it's just... I see I, what... The, yeah, you know. so they're trying to um, basically feel like you haven't spent any money this is essentially the same principle as the credit card where it's just you know you, you can have all the products now 
And from, say, from a neuroscience perspective, although very basic neuroscience, you can have all of the dopamine release now. You can have all of the reward now. Your nucleus accumbens can light the fuck up. But there's no pain. There is no loss of money or loss of resource. There is nothing to compensate for the fact that you've just gained something. I like the idea of being able to walk out of the supermarket without having to queue up behind 15 people that are sure. waiting at the checkout. It's an interesting thing, as you say, all of this would have started, you know, we originally had money, but then we moved to checks and we moved to, I think it was the credit cards were developed back mm -hmm. in the 1950s, perhaps? Um, uh, 50s, I think, saw the metal card, and from there on, you got plastic cards, and they got popularized in the 60s, yeah. Yeah, okay. And the, the, the credit there is, you know, you don't even have the money necessarily there, so mm -hmm. it's a different, quite a different complex situation as well buying stuff yeah it's it's a complete it's it's a very interesting shift on in how people handle money but the thing is and, and this i find quite funny I've, I've recently discussed this i think with i think daniel egan but i'm not entirely sure it you was during daniel a conference egan? wow <laughs> yeah it was just during a conference uh, i think the 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 boulder one Boulder is, is, a, is a great conference. They, they had the consumer finance conference on this summer. I would, I would always recommend that one. And um, yeah, it, it was, I mean, first of all, it's always nice to see that. And he's, he's a great guy. Um, but I think we were talking about the fact. Now I'm starting to wonder if this was with Dan or with Wim. Doesn't matter, either with Wim Stamers or, or Dan Egan. It, it doesn't matter too much. They're both great. But just the idea of credit cards have really fallen out of favor with say about i think my generation maybe 30 or younger that those generations are really really not keen on credit cards they think they're scams and you know to some yeah. extent they're not entirely wrong but then they do use klarna or these afterpay methods which is the same thing just without the plastic card and it's just very interesting how different generations just have different iterations of what is often referred to as consumption smoothing it's just that as we get younger or as the generations get more tech savvy rather they they just come in different forms instead of a card like a physical manifestation uh which with a with a terrible track record uh, we're now looking at uh, sites and apps that provide you the same service and that can somewhat claim they do not have that terrible track record and then are you know better maybe okay. the improved right. version until proven otherwise but at, at the at the basis still i love this term consumption smoothing um, That's how the credit card got introduced. I see. Okay. Well, there's a credit lot of card now is a very sticky product as well because, mm -hmm. um, particularly in America, where you need to have a credit score in order to get a large loan to purchase a house, for example. One yeah. of the people build up their credit score is by having that credit card initially, getting the yeah. up and that. Um, that risk rating to an appropriate level where you can get a loan. And um, so because oh, yeah. it's so entrenched in the system, you can it's, it's, it's can be quite challenging, especially for people that don't have a lot of money or um, to build up a credit score. Uh, and ironically, to a degree, those without the money who, who want a loan have to start off with getting a credit card. Yes, this idea of like, I understand why they do it. So I, I understand that if they have access to how you deal with credit or any type of loan, which is what a credit card is, uh, although people desperately don't want to call it that, but it is a loan, um, they, they need to know that you can handle it. They need to know that you're not a risk. This is just a way of weeding out risk. Credit card comparatively is a relatively small loan. So if you already can't even manage a small loan, you're not eligible for a mortgage. Yeah. So they're, they're weeding out risk, you know, when giving you a credit card to figure out, you know, can they handle yeah. small loans? Should they have higher loans? They're, they're building an entire profile on you. And I mean, data-wise, this, this is very easy. I think it, Amazon might know a lot about you. I think your bank knows even more, maybe even more than Google, but I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to make that claim. So in, in general, from that perspective, I get it, but I don't understand why someone who actively doesn't want a credit card and has, and through other data, because you, you, you still have access to this data, it's not no credit card, no data. That's not how a bank works. 
that even through this, through good financial management, having bills, always paying them on time, but having them shifted on current accounts, you can check this with people. You can check whether they're any good. You can check how much they save. You can check what other debts they have outstanding. And I just, I've never fully been able to wrap my head around the idea that you should be more eligible for a loan uh, or mortgage, much larger loan, if you are somewhat okay with a credit card as compared to you're really, really, really good without one. I don't I, I, understand it. I'm sensing a bit of a, a theme, if you like, in your, your inquiries and, and what your your goals are, at least um, with your research and career. Mm. And it, it kind of comes back to what you said you wanted to do initially, which was um, it's almost like a, a, an advocacy type role where you're you're nudging people to do what's good for them in, in the long term which is to save and accumulate money and then you said you're almost expecting to end up working for a bank or, or a fintech so there are plenty of good things that banks and fintech firms do for society let's sure. not be too cynical but it sounds like you feel that there are other institutions or organizations which maybe do perform more of an advocacy role in terms of people's personal finance and saving behavior what within that scope of, of firms or businesses or organizations? Um, would it be like a government organization or no. are there like nudge units for personal finance or saving? <laughs> uh, so this is the irony to answer your question. So I know very little about consumer or personal finance advocacy. I know next to nothing. Um, I do know, of course, the, the watchdogs like the UK FCA or the Dutch AFM, because I'm, I'm Dutch myself. That's why I know the Dutch watchdog. But the, the thing is, and, and I don't mean to say this uh, about them in, in any negative way, but I feel that if you are with a watchdog, you are so reliant on the data you can get your hands on after the fact. Yeah. And you won't be able to get to a lot of the data that these firms have in-house, you know, the ones that you're actually checking. I think I, so this is why I say with a bit of a smirk, I'll still end up working for a fintech mm. or a bank, which given maybe my my goals uh, as you have identified them it sounds maybe a bit counterintuitive but that is exactly where i need to be for this type of data it is probably better to be at the inception of some of these products and services as a behavioral scientist mm. than it is to research them years and years after and go like yeah this this, this is not good <laughs> or um a lot of banks that have what is known as, as consumer units or very specific research units, uh, financial well-being units they have as well. Um, it kind of depends on the bank where exactly this unit is um, or what it's called, but they, they do have them. And I think I would really, really enjoy working for something like that. And, um, that reminds us of the last interview that we had with Francesca. She mentioned the app called Plum which yeah. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but she talked about how it yeah. had a lot of automation and a lot of capability to enable, not force, but um, encourage people to invest. Yeah, apps like that, I think, are, are also great. It wasn't Plum started by Max. I think it was at the Behavioural Exchange when it was in London. Also, a great conference if you can do, do show up for it. Could you um, do contactless payment for the conference? Uh, well, they do online payments, so <laughs> it's a, an even worse version. <laughs> At least it's not a one-click buy system for the conference. Like you click wrong and like, oops, there goes thousands of dollars. <laughs> Oopsie. <laughs> You're not getting them refunded either. Um, I've got a story about contactless payments and thousands of dollars. I, I actually paid for the diamond for my wife's engagement ring using my watch. <laughs> <laughs> how is that even possible i was stunned that, that there was no um it didn't even require me to put a pin in i just swiped my my wrist and i uh, i bought this um argyle diamond a nice pink diamond for my <laughs> i mean first of all great choice of diamond i would like to say well, very you know, nice i'm an investor and what appealed to me is the fact that there's a, a the, the compound annual growth rate um on the values of those diamonds is, is that about, how you sold it to your wife it, because it's not very so, romantic is it <laughs> when i mentioned that yeah. never say that again <laughs> yeah literally sweetheart i love you would you like to marry me? by the way i've already picked out your ring it's a great investment opportunity so you only have a limited choice of diamonds i'm just letting you know <laughs> Such a um, romantic. 
and in 25 years it'll be worth more than exactly <laughs> that's what i said you can buy all the extra diamonds you want just <laughs> just stick to this one i see i see now you know we're running an investing podcast all right i'm obsessed <laughs> Is, is your wife remotely into finance? Because otherwise, this is quite a hard sell. <laughs> um, my wife uh, really appreciates um, uh, what what we do. And okay. she's a physicist. So she gets the, the math behind it. Um, yeah. Nice. So uh, I'm very grateful um, that yeah we, we have a little bit um, of overlap in our interests there. So. <laughs> Romantic investment opportunities and the mathematical formulas behind them i'm sure you have great dinner table conversations <laughs> she's gonna love listening to this episode uh we've shifted into and in especially the past couple of episodes has been an app and this okay. is also to keep um pushing you about what uh, not that i want this to be some sort of career counseling session or something but to to push along uh, further about the advocacy side of things which also relates to again ben's compounding sheet and the point of this podcast um what if you were to to try to put all of the first principles you've discovered in your research sure. into a product or a service that has a, a at its base an advocacy function which causes the average person or even better the below average person in terms of income and intellect and socioeconomic status to drastically change the complexion of their future in the long term what about a foundation or a topic for school students okay i would love rocking up to uh, late primary early secondary and just teaching them about personal finance i think currently at least through my education and i've heard the same about the uk and, and the us uh, secondary level education you don't get taught at all about how you manage money it's just it's it's very much lacking now the issue with teaching anything about finance or increasing financial literacy as it's often called although it's not by default the same thing is that there is absolutely garbage evidence on it and with garbage i don't mean that the studies conducted regarding it were terrible because they weren't it's just that increasing financial literacy the way it has been done through just education doesn't seem to work now the issue with this is that you can't well, I don't want to say you can't teach an old dog new tricks, because I'm sure you can. I've, I've had several old dogs. You most definitely can. They just need to be incentivized. But the, the idea is more that if you wait too long and if the lessons that you're given them are not directly applicable or are too far removed from what they've already been taught for years and years and maybe even decades, this information doesn't stick. So you're going to have to show up quite early on in, in someone's life to teach them about money. And as a result, that on specifically form a money mindset, I think knowing how to read um, a, a balance or knowing how to balance your books is, is very, very important. It's, it's a sure uh, way of figuring out whether you're in debt or not. So you won't be surprised. But I think the idea of knowing what you can do with money and what money can do for you and just being in a certain perception of being in debt for an investment in yourself with regards to education or mental health is not a bad thing. But this is not something that you get taught. You get taught being in debt is a bad thing. And then suddenly you no longer differentiate between the debt, whereas being in debt to consume is so much worse than being in debt to invest. But what high school or like what, what primary school are you going to rock up to with that message? So it's, you have to get there really, really early to be at a formative stage of how people form their perceptions about money. But to have this conversation with a six-year-old also seems a bit odd. And as a result, you have to be really careful with how you design this. Because this is really, really tricky stuff. Telling an 18-year-old, hey, this is how an APR rate works on a credit card is already too late because the average 18-year-old will already be in debt, which is insane. What? Yeah, I think if you're in the Western world with 18 years old, if you're starting to move into higher education, okay. uh, th that will be put yep. on credit card. You oh, will I be didn't... in debt. Oh, my God. So it's almost 
part of that thing where it's very difficult to instill or develop up a program within an education, um, a school education system to instill it across a broad range of students, but rather from what I'm hearing from you anyways, one thing that you would want to think about is developing and teaching your children yourself. So making it a more of a sure. education aspect and more of a, I don't know if it's really cultural, I don't want to go into that, but it's more something that, um, how, how do you use money? How do your children use money? How do you talk about money within your family um, mm. and share those? You know, not, not so much in a lesson, but as a general part of normal day life within the family. I think you can't avoid it. The very famous paper called the psychology of poverty. The idea of the paper is very simple. That if you are in poverty for a prolonged period of time, it changes your risk perception and how you experience time. So how, how much you discount. So you literally become more risk averse and more impatient as you persistently are in a level of poverty. So if you grow up in levels of poverty, this is going to change to very, very basic aspects of your decision making, namely your patience and your risk attitude. And I think, and th this is a hypothesis not tested, but if this uh, is the setting of your childhood, I think a lot of this would be offset or helped if your family talked about money and explains where the money is coming from and where the money is going to and that this is not by default what the rest of your life is going to be like um, and I'm not saying that only people who are or have experienced poverty should talk about money but there is the idea that the longer you are in poverty you know being impatient with regards to money is essentially a sheer contradiction to being able to hold money for investment or to save for later because if you're impatient there is no later and this, this is a very very important aspect of how you relate to money and if you're completely risk averse you don't start your own business you don't start ventures which ironically is one of the most well-known ways of moving up in socioeconomic strata these are very very important things so from that perspective i think if you are in poverty or no poverty have experienced poverty is very very important to talk about that and talk about that to your children but it's the same for anyone else you know if your parents are really really wealthy it's probably a good idea to sit around the table with them and just have a discussion about how exactly that happened because people who come out of really wealthy families and never had to worry about money ironically also know very little about money yeah. which is not helpful i've heard also heard ideas that different cultures have different relationships with money and mm -hmm. that one yeah. group of people and i don't want to get controversial here but one one group of um culture is able to become wealthy is because their relationship with money and how they deal with it within their family network you know, sharing money uh, supporting your cousin's business or something like that sure. um, investment and um, that's been able to develop up businesses and wealth across different groups whereas other cultures don't necessarily do that they may be more individualistic with how they hold their money and, and don't necessarily share it um, so definitely interesting topics there I think. Yeah, absolutely. I, I do think you're right with regard. I do think that individualism versus collectivism is, is a really, really interesting way of seeing how people invest and what they invest in. Obviously, within collectivist cultures, the network effects of where money goes are, are extreme. Um, so if it goes up, the entire network goes up. But if it goes down, the entire network goes down. Um, the, the vicious cycle or the cyclical nature of this is, is really, really quite extreme. Um, which, you know, if it's good, it's good, but if it's bad, you know, it's it's really bad. Um, but th they would be a very interesting topic of research. I don't think it's been researched that well, um, but of course it's a deviation from the West, so surprise. For example, how um, investing works in, in India, if you have larger families of which one leg, for example, has a firm and that most people that, it becomes a family firm and then through investment, you grow and you grow and you grow. Obviously, if that yeah. works well, the entire family benefits, but if this backfires, of course, no one benefits. To be specific, what I had heard that um, Jewish 
um, families were very, uh, very much more willing to share their money and invest in, um, you know, broader family uh, in, uh, mm. businesses and, and their relationship with money is more around sharing and, and supporting the broader family network. Um, than yeah, that makes sense. But I mean, so th this is, I don't even know if I could compare it to a public goods game. Um, it's just whoever has the money pumps money into it. And then as a result, everyone else benefits, of course, with business, bit, bit of, you know, bit of a risk. But then I suppose if you have an entirely, uh, if you have an entire family backing this, I'm sure they've done their research into the viability of this business. Sure. Um, I think the general stereotype, although I don't feel very good about propagating the stereotype because it can work against you, but I've always been told maybe potentially by bigots, but I don't know, that, a Jew, that the Jews are very good with money. Jewish people are very good with money and they're actually incredibly good at, in, at in finding really good investment opportunities. So, I mean, if that works for them and if that enriches their community, I mean, good for them. But it might also be just a terrible stereotype. I do not But know. if it is good for them and they are, you know, they have discovered a principle, well, we should just learn what it is and, you know, yeah, it doesn't. Where it would be nice uh, if they could tweet me what the what the principle <laughs> exactly is. I, I'd love to hear it. But, but my point there is that the principle or the, the critical thing is not so much of working out an algorithm or a formula for investing in the stock market. It's more of a cultural, social um, yeah, yeah, yeah. principle. Yeah. But investing can be a very social or cult uh, cultural principle. I think it, culture, I'm going to be very honest, I'm not an expert on culture, definitely not on the cultural aspect of investing. But with regards to, to the social aspect of investing, which I think is becoming very, very problematic, um, I don't know how you feel about apps like Robinhood, this like quick trade, small investment type stuff. I've written an article about this, this a while ago, and I've read similar stuff like it, but I find uh, Robin Hood just an angry bird with numbers. Now, I don't know if you ever enjoyed playing Angry Birds. I, I didn't. Uh, I'm not really a, a phone game. I loved it. I've got it on my iPad. <laughs> okay, well, at least, you know, at least Will is totally with it. Um, but I think the, the if you look at Robin Hood, and sure, there there's no, there's mostly no fees for, for whatever's going on. But the way the business model of the app works you know you're kind of being scammed out of your money because of order flow trading which most people don't know what it is mm. so they're not going to be worried about it but it is actually quite problematic robin hood or apps like it because there's I'm not to slander one specific app but any type of small time quick turnover investment app i'm not a fan of them they to me they look like uh games there is this thing that there is a very social aspect of investing and with robin hood especially or any other app like it um there is a that they are building entire communities around talking about what they invested in today or this hour or however quick you want to run this trade i personally do not have the time um nor the inclination but it's just there. And this is the thing which I find very interesting because you see this with gambling as well. And this is a lot like gambling, whether they want to admit to that or not, that people sit together and be like, oh, this is how much I made this week or this hour. And this is a stock I'm investing in. And this is a stock I'm looking out for. And they, they're just having these casual chats in the pub, or like in the locker room of the football field. I just wanted to wind back a few minutes to a couple <laughs> of terms you mentioned. What's either called hyperbolic discounting or described as delay discounting by Tom Watts, the second interviewee sure. uh, we had um, after you, Ben. Um, then Francesca uh, called it hyperbolic discounting. So mm. there's that. Um, another theme that you mentioned was time and the perception of time. And that was raised by David Fanner. Um, which was oh, a new of course one. yeah yeah um, so this was related to to how it is to be in poverty and uh, how time you, you said that time feels different when you're yeah. in poverty you don't have the patience and also you are uh, you you don't do you do you discount things more do you discount the future more when you're yeah. in poverty and that translates into being a, a lack of patience yeah, sure. So, so there's a couple of caveats here. So um, with regards to discounting or these actually these discounting formulas. So within uh, behavioral science or behavioral economics, if you will, you've, you've got essentially three sets of possible uh, mathematics underlying discounting or time perception, if you will. So the original one is exponential discounting 
followed by hyperbolic discounting, followed by quasi-hyperbolic discounting. And I think the general agreement is now that, that you're either dealing with hyperbolic or quasi-hyperbolic. Quasi-hyperbolic meaning that if I can have it now versus one time period later, I really, really, really want to have it now. Like I care a lot about that one time period difference, but only if the other option is now. If I then look at the difference between having something at uh, time one versus time two, meaning that I can't have it now uh, anyway, I don't really care that much. And the difference between time two and time three, don't really care that much. The difference between time 100 and 101, don't really care that much. Um, and and I'll, I'm very likely to wait it out then because like what's an additional day, what's an additional week for like a bit of extra money. But if it's now versus I have to wait any type of time period, I want it now. And for some people, this is much more dramatic than for other people. But that is essentially the, the gist behind quasi-hyperbolic discounting. Okay, so you're talking generally. Mm -hmm. So when someone's in poverty, so it's uncertain that they can afford food, yeah. Uh, you know, in the next week, are you saying that that effect is even more pronounced? And so therefore the capacity of a listener who's in poverty to work in accordance with Ben's billion dollar compounding plan is even lower than the yeah. average person. Yeah. So keep in mind that I'm not saying... This comes with a massive caveat, which if I can find the original article, I'll, I'll send you the link. They mentioned this caveat as well. If you are in prolonged poverty, you know for a fact that you might not have enough resources to make it to the next day. So T plus one, let alone T plus 10, 10 days later, 10 weeks later, whatever. As a result, your perception of money changes. So it is the fact that you are aware of your limited resources, which changes how you perceive your resources that you might have now or that you do have now and that you might have in the future. So keep in mind this idea of that you might have resources is both looking at the future and very likely discounting it, but also the word might implies a risk. You might have these resources, you might not. And given the fact that you've just become more impatient because you might not even make it till T plus one, plus the yeah. idea that this resource may be there and may not be there, yeah. the immense amount of stress this builds in a person will affect your cognitive ability to yes. make decisions. This works against you constantly, but the causal relationship is very often a bit murky like people aren't sure what comes first. Like, is it because you're in poverty that these for prolonged periods of time that these things changes? Or, I mean, I think that that's most likely the, the relationship. The, the other one is, um, is very often used to make an argument as to why uh, poorer people just have a worse mindset with regards to money. But I don't want to get into that one because I think it's a, it's a god-awful argument which screams entitlement and privilege. To turn it to a little bit of an optimistic um, lens, could you? is there any evidence that shows that once you do start to build up your snowball of money and resources behind you, you start to reduce your um, delayed discounting, um, the amount that you actually d discount. So if you do build up a portfolio of, let's call it, um, ten thousand dollars then obviously you you know that you today you're okay next week you're okay and therefore you can start to change your mindset and you're not um, discounting as much so this is very very interesting am i aware of research that answers that directly uh, no but i'm happy to look uh, for it for you because i do think it would be interesting i think there is the general idea that if you do come from poverty that you end up with and if you do end up with with wealth where which, which i hope for everyone um that you kind of go either one one of two very extreme ways either you do not save at all and you spend everything that you have because of the security of money may not be there tomorrow but at least my the the goods that i have acquired are or the complete opposite where you turn into a scrooge like you save every penny, you you get try to get a deal out of everything. You try you, you become a complete tightwad. 
So with regards to the spendthrift tightwad scale, there seems to be the general idea that you're going to end up on either of the extremes on the spectrum, but the middle way apparently is not available to you, which is, is very, very interesting. But I mean, keep in mind, if, if you've never had any money to spare for any type of, of luxury good, you know, if, if you know poverty, this is going to make an impact. It, it, it has to. I feel like I've had this fantasy in this whole exercise we've been doing since last year that if there's anybody that we impact or if there's any good that comes out of this podcast, mm. it is someone who is poor, who somehow sees and, and based on what you've been saying that they'll have to, what we're doing will have to somehow get them through this, the, the, I don't want to sound, I, 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 I'm afraid I'll have to use cliche terms. Um, they'll have to somehow get through the struggle for survival, the weak, mm. you know. But if, if somehow the message that, um, the simple mathematical message that, you know, Ben um, illustrated in the sheet, it would, be, it would be a great outcome, I feel, if, if someone who otherwise looks like they don't have prospects could use this simple approach to after you know um 30 years go from you know living you know in in the world's worst apartment to to having you know a penthouse or something because of slowly and steadily applying the principle maybe i'm sounding like a i'm trying to be a savior or something but that's also why i was asking you about you know whether you necessarily have but it, it, it's a tragedy almost that um you do have this expectation that you'll end up working for a bank or a fintech that exploits people's urges. Wh well, destroy the enemy from within, right? Right. Oh, and I love that concept. And I've done the same thing at, at, in a couple of jobs in the Middle East, let me tell you. Um, okay, fine. If that's how it is, uh, I, I hope you're successful. But, um, but, but I, then... do, I do want to to come back to, to what you've just mentioned um, without sounding too much like a critic of what you just stated. Although, uh, Ben, I do like your compounding sheet and I, I do think your, your mission is a very good one. But I think you have to put a massive, and I do mean a massive disclaimer on this type of thinking. And that is the idea that most people aren't poor because they're impatient or risk averse. Most people, they aren't even poor because of anything they did themselves. And behavioral science or any type of application of behavior or financial training or just being able to understand how money works is not a guarantee for coming out of poverty. And behavioral science cannot fix structural economic inequality nor should it be applied to do such like it's not like hey apply behavioral science or you know go work for a bank and and give people a better products that are not exploitative that is not gonna change a country which has no middle class a growing lower class and you know an, an ever smaller yet somehow still getting richer upper class that, that is not something behavioral science can fix because that is not a behavioral problem. That is a very much a structural problem which continues to persist because no one at the top has any incentive of really changing that. And people at the bottom of this pyramid, because this is, again, this is just a different kind of pyramid scheme, really, um, don't have the capacity or the resource, and I do mean resource in the broadest sense of the term, to really change anything about it. If you're at the bottom of this pyramid, you, your immediate concerns, to some extent related to time discounting, are making it to the next day. They are not going on to the barricades and making sure that this economic system changes. Because let's be realistic, if you're going to the barricades, this will be a very, very long stance at the barricades, for which that doesn't pay bills, that, that doesn't get you to the next right. day, that doesn't pay the rent, and that doesn't get your children through education. And that is something that has to be recognized. I am a massive proponent of behavioral science and its applications, because I believe it can change behavior. I don't think it can believe it can relieve or really change massive structural inequality, which gets propagated by 
our economic and governmental system. And let's also say banks. Yes. Which maybe underpin a lot of the political parties. Yeah. And maybe say yes or no to a lot of the uh, uh, plans of corporations that try to borrow money from them. Yeah. Banks are an interesting target. Call me an idealist. But for That's God's okay. sake, for God's sake, there has to be a world where we can work for a financial institution. Without selling is, our soul. Yes. So if it doesn't exist, how do we make it? I think they do exist. I just think most people don't exactly know where to look. So there's plenty of initiatives. So a lot of apps, um, I think Monzo, uh, but Monzo is UK based. I'm not sure this, this translates well globally. Uh, Monzo was started up by a bunch of idealists um, and of which I think half of them were behavioral scientists. And you can still see very much in the design of that app and, and how, it's, um, how it presents itself and how it works um, with good UX, by the way, how this is designed to help you. Like you can see, well, maybe as a behavioral scientist, uh, I can see that. I can see what they're trying to do, how it's being done and how it ought to work with an emphasis on ought to. But I mean, a lot of this stuff, I mean, not, not the shit on Monzo. I think they're, think they're a great company. I think they're a great app. But, you know, some of this stuff is rather uncharted territory and it can backfire. And that, that is just, you know, as soon as you do anything that hasn't really been done before, it happens. Um I, I, I think I'm willing to incur that cost. Uh, you know, not okay. that anyone asked me, but, you know, I'm willing. Um, yeah. it's, it's just tough like that. You know, th there are institutions like this. And then I've recently had a conversation with George Detar, uh, who works with Typhoon uh, up in the States. And they are mainly into figuring out a way to propel community banking into the 21st century technology-wise. Um, which again, you know, if, if you're interested in how finance works in communities and then community banking as a as a more social alternative to traditional banking, I, I think there's a lot of ground to, to discover there. But, and this is the irony, to go to a traditional bank for all your financial needs is the default. And people don't deviate from defaults. It's just, you, you need a massive override or a massive okay. shock to the system to change this type of behavior. All right. So what I'm seeing is we need a rebel bank. But there are a couple of rebel banks already. Most of them will be in the neo bank or the DeFi space. Is that Starling? But, but what does Starling um, do? I think Starling is very similar to Monzo. It's, it's behavioral banking. It's, it's just financial services, very strongly grounded in behavioral science. And advocacy. I want to have a bank that does <laughs> advocacy. My father's family, they had the Carmarthen Bank um, in oh. Wales. It went bankrupt. So I only have bad banking genes. But <laughs> in a way, they were kind of a rebel bank because, <clears throat> and the reason they went bankrupt is um, they, they had a soft spot for the farmers in the district. And, and that's because initially they were farmers and they did really well, well enough to um, buy their way into a bank. I think it was a partnership. But then because they lent out too much money. Um, yeah. Uh, so. Hmm. So obviously that that's maybe, um, you know, you got to learn the lesson of um, not being too much of a rebel or not being too much of an advocate. In the end, people have to look after their damn selves. I mean, um, maybe they needed a credit risk score. Yeah. That, no, I don't think they need a FICO. I think we could stay away from the FICO. Honestly, if I... If they I would have avoided that whole problem if they had a... No, no, it wouldn't have. You know what would have helped you here? Diversification. Would have would have done just as well. You don't need a credit score for that. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I don't know if I'm against the... I think I'm against the credit score as it is now. I mean, I, I get that you want to score people somewhat. It's just that I don't like the components currently. I think that model needs to be revisited. I think I'll, I'll leave you with that at the end of the episode. Just revisit the, the credit card scoring model. Just do it differently. You have enough data. You've got no excuse, okay, honestly. There would be a lot of... The public would be highly receptive to the concept of a rebel bank, I believe, which has at its core perhaps a bunch of rich and successful people who have maybe come from poverty, sure. who want to raise the community up, who want to have 
one thing that the bank could so so um there was the dolomite saving scheme from the commonwealth bank australia's biggest bank and it was to encourage saving up from mm -hmm. basically preschool and you all got a little dolomite savings uh piggy bank i had one um Cute. so there can be an up to updated approach to community advocacy or savings advocacy or personal finance advocacy from this rural bank, which will be a, an, uh, a curriculum for uh, saving and investing from grade one at school. And this bank can offer that to the to, to private schools, public schools, whatever. There can be a, a whole branch of, of, of the bank um, that is mm -hmm. uh, uh, government facing um, and uh, is about advocacy. Mm -hmm. um, Oh, there could be all sorts of things. There could be that I, I would love to have an educational side of, of the bank. And that would be a way to generate um, goodwill in the community, right? Yes. Um, that's how you steal customers from 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 Lloyd's Bank or or, or um, whatever the oh, other one. Poor Lloyd's, they have a really nice behavioral unit, you know. Oh really? Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, they right. do. We, we won't we won't uh, focus our, our artillery um, on them. No, Maybe. I I a colleague of mine or um a, a friend of mine who finished a phd before i did she's currently working for that unit from from what i've gathered although you know it's heavily restricted by ndas they're they're doing some some really cool work in that space so don't don't hate too much on lloyd's okay well i can research them but i think um there's space for a rebel bank there's definitely space for a rebel bank but keep in mind when you start a rebel bank what you're doing is you're going to compete against the traditional sector. Easy win if you're technologically advanced enough because these banks are generally stuck in the wrong century. Um, then you're going to have to compete against neobanks who are already leveraging that advantage and have presented themselves as rebel banks uh, because that's how they're winning this ground. And then you're going to also have to compete against the real rebels, which are in the decentralized finance space. Because if you want to be rebellious, just react, just reject the whole traditional finance system and yeah. go deafy. Yeah. There was a, uh, a talk by Peter Thiel um, probably about 20 years ago where he talked about the change of money and how it, how it would change in the future. And he predicted that eventually... He wasn't predicting a Bitcoin or an Ethereum type product. He was talking more around indexes. And so let's say everyone held uh, some shares in, in an S&P 500 index, for example, and used that as currency to trade and purchase things. So it's actually a lot more connected than Bitcoin is to some, something that's actually productive. Mm. Um, so if you pay for something with your S&P 500 or you receive some payment for your services for the S&P 500, then you're also getting the associated dividends and growth of those underlying companies yeah. as well. So for me, that was groundbreaking because I thought yeah. it's even a lot more better than a, a Bitcoin, which is not really, doesn't produce any yield on its own yeah but i mean i i i think it i think it's a great idea personally i i think making that system way more interconnected i think poses some really really interesting possibilities the thing is just if you look at what Daffy wants to do so this this idea from uh, peter thiel if, if i heard you correctly is very much in line with sticking with traditional finance although in this case cutting out some middlemen because now the the stock itself is is immediately tradable um, but the idea with decentralized finance is very much that they're against the exploitative, almost corporate nature of the current financial system, and they want to cut out those people as middlemen. Mm. So it's mm. because, I mean, most smart contracts are based on peer-to-peer -peer lending. I think those DEXs are the main aspect of what is so interesting about decentralized finance. Maybe that's just my perception of it. I'm not arguing. I'm remotely an expert on this topic. Um, but I thought that, I mean, obviously the hype is around crypto trading and then buying overpriced cat pictures, although I think that hype died around three months ago as well. So I guess it's no longer interesting. Um, but, you know, stuff like this, like there, there's a lot of hypes coming from Daffy, but Daffy at its very stable core is, is essentially just one hell of a peer-to-peer -peer lending protocol with just less corporations involved. Um, which I think is very, very interesting. But peer-to-peer -peer lending also exists in a traditional system. While traditional being, you know, you have a bank account, you transfer money to someone else via a site or platform, and you hope for the best. 
One of the things you mentioned there is um, a common thing between some of the things that you've mentioned is novelty and people really enjoy novelty and you know, yeah. tactless payments. I remember when I first got my card and I thought, wow, I really want to try this out. So I'll go out and buy something just to try the card. And it's the same with Robinhood investing, you know, gamification. Yeah. People want novelty um, and narrative as well. So and you don't want to miss out. I mean, if all your friends have it, like, I mean, th this is the social aspect of, for example, Robin Hood. If all your friends have it, you're likely to have it as well. You don't want to lag behind that much. With contactless payments, I don't think it's, it's as social, but if it's enabled all around you because you've just reached a threshold of the amount of people that want to use this payment method, the technology does update with that to, you know, ensure the, the best consumer experience that you can have just because it makes you spend more money and makes you frequent the store more often. But it's just that there are a lot of social or threshold or network effects, whatever you want to call them, at play here. And this, this is the same for contactless cars. This is the same for mobile payments. This is the same for Angry Birds. This is the same for having Apple Pay installed on your phone. It's the same for having Robin Hood installed on your phone. And it's the same for using Klarna and using Tilla stores and the one-click buy system. And the fact that you're suddenly in massive consumer debt, although, I mean, caveat, there's probably a couple more things that need to happen before you're massively in debt by surprise. And then if you look around you and everyone else is doing the exact same thing and everyone is in consumer debt and everyone seems to think, nah, we'll sort this out eventually. We don't have to worry about that. Or the idea like, nah, you know, saving for retirement or saving for a later or a rainy day. We'll get to that eventually. If everyone around you does that, you're going to do exactly the same with all the dire consequences possible. Let's wrap up last comments here. So over to Will, last final comments or, or things that you have. Yeah, so let's try and sum it up then. To use all that you've given us <coughs> in this discussion to solve the problem that uh, Ben came up with, which is why the hell humans don't do what seems like is the most favorable activity for them, which is to get a billion dollars. The impression I'm getting for why the hell people don't is that um, quasi-discounting or hyperbolic discounting, that essentially kills the impact, the psychological impact of the incredible gain of having a billion dollars is. Suddenly it doesn't feel like that. I mean, um, I, th I think there's a lot of factors uh, at play here, uh, and it's very context dependent. You're talking to a behavioral scientist, you had to see this answer coming. Um, but yeah, the, the idea that you might, you might have a billion dollars or a billion of any currency in the future, granted with the risk and the discounting that you may or may not have this money, the idea of that in comparison to currently being able to consume or to currently have mm. fun or to currently have a, a slightly more fun lifestyle, you'd yeah. think that this is a really, really simple trade-off because, you know, a billion later versus a, a yeah. lot less yeah. now, but that's not the trade-off. That's no. not the trade-off at all because of risk attitude and because of discounting. That's mm. not the trade-off at all. So it's not, it's, it's just, it's, for for a, for a human being, this this trade off is actually incredibly difficult. Mm, it is, yeah. And, and in in a way, perhaps really all our project is is to illustrate how difficult that is because we're talking about a billion dollars and it's meaningless in the face of these factors. That was one of the 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 themes that I, I wanted to highlight in, in my summary of what you you were saying. Then there was the structural thing, mm. and basically you said. I'm sorry, it's tragic, but you're not going to get anywhere. <laughs> well, I mean, that, that's, that's a bit harsh. No, it's just what, I, what I've noticed recently, and maybe this is just me being a massive skeptic, but it's just what I've recently seen within predominantly Western European governments, but then I'm looking at my own, so the Dutch government and the UK government uh, specifically, is that they've tried to do a lot through behavioral science, and the way that they've done, so some of the applications were great, and I'm, I'm happy that behavioral science is, is playing a more central role in, in uh, governmental policy, or any type of policy, really. 
But my main concern is that what we've seen, which is more in the UK than it's been in the Netherlands, is that these policies or certain decisions are grounded in behavioral science as a way of being able to avoid a very unpopular decision, um, like a much more hardcore decision. I've, I think we've seen it throughout the pandemic. It's just, you can't make you can't make weak-hearted policies grounded in behavioral science, somewhat grounded in behavioral science, as a fix for a structural problem or a fix for a very persistent problem, which is not really grounded in behavior, just as a way, uh, as a political party or a person in power, to avoid making a much stronger law-based regulation just because you know that regulation is going to be immensely unpopular. And I'm, and then, you know, people are like, oh, this policy didn't work. And I'm like, no, of course it didn't work. Right. So, okay. so I want to bring it back to um, yeah. what, what, what are the two or three key individual points that an individual can take away from this podcast? Um, I think contactless payments, uh, you need to be wary of them in, in a sense. Uh, be aware of what you're actually um, buying and consider uh, how you are buying things. I think that's a good tip. Um, I also- Yeah, yeah. extend it beyond contactless though. Include mobile, include a smartwatch, include Apple Pay, in include the whole lot of it. Yeah. Everything that came after the, the, the pin verified debit card or actually anything yeah. that came yeah. after cash. Just, if just you can add it. a little bit of friction, it's good. And yeah. another key um, message that I got that was handy for people is to think about the family situation and how money is within your own family and, and think mm. about talking about that and, and yeah. understanding the, the reason that your family is in the situation that it's in or you're in the situation you're in, um, whether it's yeah. that. Um, and then I think that the last point, as, as Mel said, try to uh, destroy the enemy from within. 